Welcome to the Academic Work-Life Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to have a discussion about how we might all live more balanced lives. I believe that maintaining inspiration and not getting burned out are challenging tasks that we face. Dr. Jacinta Biner. That's right. Did I say it overnight? Okay. And you're um, currently an associate professor at the University of Michigan? That's right. Um, so maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit about what you study and what your interests are research-wise. Sure. Uh, well, I'm from the start, I've always been really interested in the evolution of social behavior, which I know is a really broad topic, but I just feel I really love evolution um, and I love mechanisms of evolution. Um, but what what fascinates me most is to look at how social behavior ev- evolves, and of course primates are the best for that. There's certainly many social mammals, but I feel like to really get at social behavior, if you want to get at all the intricacies, uh, primates are the ones to study. So I set about studying the evolution of social behavior in primates. Um, I've come at it from lots of different angles, but what I've sort of uh, honed in on, or at least where I've carved my own niche in the social evolution of mammals is reproductive strategies. I started out with males, but uh, to be honest, I find males a bit dull. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's like you just push your way in and see what you can do. And I, I love the subtlety of the female strategies. So in most cases, males are bigger than females. They can push females around. Um, they, they tend to get what they want. And so where I found the m- most interesting things to seem to evolve are when you look at female counter strategies. So what females do to maximize their own reproductive success in the face of all this male coercion. So I really love that area. So I've started studying not only behavioral responses to male coercion, but also physiological responses. Um, and then fitness, what's the outcome? That's very cool. So I guess like, you know, way back before you really got all of your research chops. Uh, <laughs> I'm uh, not sure I still have them. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you find this passion? Is there a certain moment that stands out? Funny you should say that. The, the whole process by which we study things is... is, is For some people, I think they have a passionate, they know they want to answer this question and they just go after it. But I actually think that's really rare. I think that's a lot more rare than people think because looking back at everything, you pull it all together into this clean line. I've always studied this because that's what we have to do. Sure. But that's so not what happens. I, I think we do get thrown around by what postdoctoral positions available or what our advisor wants us to study or what... I do think there's a lot of ricocheting from here to there where you don't necessarily feel like you are in control of what you're studying. And often we get down paths where we hate what we're studying and we we pull ourselves back or we we go in a different direction. And I think that's a normal process for biology or for sciences. Um, But what you yourself are drawn to just happens, you know, where you're doing this project, but this is what really draws you. And uh, there was a, a faculty member in my department who said this. We had a faculty member who was doing a lot of teaching uh, on purpose. She was she was spending tons and tons of time with her her, 
graduate students and very little time researching. And that was a problem because you have to do both. And someone said, you know, people do, they just do what they love. They, you, you find that you end up doing what you love. And so when you start spending more time on one aspect of your project and less time on another, that should tell you that that's the thing you, you love and that you're getting more reward from that than something else. So when I look back, and I had to, this was what I did when I applied for a job, is I pretended I had this research trajectory. I pulled out, I knew that you know, what tied everything together, kind of, was this idea of reproductive strategies in females. And, and it really did, and it wasn't anything I set out to do along the way, but when I looked at my PhD thesis, and then I looked at my two postdoctoral positions, I found that I always seemed to be drawn to what females do. And it's always what females do in the face of males. You know, it was always sexual selection. It was kind of, I, I never seemed to go after natural selection. Mm -hmm. It was like, I never looked at survival. I didn't look at, I mostly focused on reproductive success and how females maximize that. So then I was able to kind of pull the things together that made it seem like a line of research. But I'm not sure. <laughs> I didn't go at it. Wasn't a, sure. I it wasn't as intentional as I made it sound. And so you mentioned that um, sometimes you might get pulled into some research that you really hate. Um, have you, do you have any occurrences that really stand out to you? And, and how did you deal with those on a personal level, like just going right. to work every day and, and pushing through right. that? I think, I think for me personally, I think I have skills in identifying interesting questions. I think I have skills in field site development and maintenance and collecting the data and figuring out what's important and what's exciting. I think I have skills in writing. I do not have skills in computational math, basically the statistical side of things. So really, I'll, I usually test my hypotheses in the simplest way when in fact there's probably a much better way to do it. So that side I struggle with a lot. And I've always struggled with it, and I just kind of now know that about myself. And that's where collaborators come in. <laughs> <laughs> I think in this world we work, or it's an enormously collaborative science. I don't think anyone expects that you're the geneticist expert, the, the statistics ex expert, the, you know, no one expects that you're all those experts. And so now, I feel like this was less true when I was a graduate student, but now it's perfectly okay to kind of bring a statistics person or a modeling person or someone who's going to do all your R code or these kinds of things on board. Sure, knowing when to reach out and grab somebody yeah. who knows how to do it already. Right, and not if it's something you love, go after it. Go out, find a lab that you can work in and train in and learn that technique and make that your own. Mm -hmm. If it's something you don't like, you don't need to necessarily do that. I mean, you do have to have something that's your own. Sure. You don't want to have outsourced five parts and that's your thesis <laughs> because then you, well, who are you? You know, find something that you love, make that your... That's where you invest in, or two or three things. I mean, it doesn't have to just be one, but it doesn't mean you need to be the expert in everything. Mm -hmm. So that's been helpful. Um, yeah. So you've alluded to it a couple of times. I'm I'm gonna assume that you love what you do. Is that the case? Um. Yeah. I guess I do. I, you know, uh, I think you know. There's headaches in every field. I, what I love about what I do is. I am my own boss. You know, I, I'm I have a flexible work schedule. I control where I go next in terms of the research, 
um, I, I, I do love the research. I love research. I get a reward from teaching. So yes, I guess I, I can't imagine another job I would do. Sure. But that's not to say that every day I wake up and love what I do. It's not like I, wow, I get to go to work today. I mean, it's ups and downs. And I think along the way, there were several times when I was like this, I'm, I'm doing something else. Yeah. Um, but then I have a therapist friend and she always kind of says, the one thing you do is you walk through the alternative. Okay, what, let's say you are, you're dropping out. What are you going to do next? So what is it? What would you do? Think of the perfect job. Think of, and as you like go through this whole scenario, you realize, you know what? This is the best job for me. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things about this that I'm good at. There's so many things about this that I love. And there's so many things about other jobs that I would just be terrible at. Mm -hmm. um, so identifying that, I think, is really important. You know, to think about if you actually see another path that, oh, this would be really nice. And you really think through it, not just, oh, it would be great to be an architect. I mean, that's, sure. you have to think about each step along the way. The grass is always greener. Yeah, so. make sure it's not a grass is always greener. But if yeah. you actually walk through, all right, I'm going to go to architecture, architecture school. What are the odds that I will get into a good program? What are the odds that then I'll have a job after? What are the flexibility? What do they pay? If you go, if you walk through the real details of being an architect, does that then, is that really now what you would want to do? Sure. But often when I've done that step process, it's like, nah, this is much better. So is that a strategy that you employ when you when you do have the down days where you're not you're not really into it, or are those the extreme cases where in the past you've thought, oh, I I want to get out of this, and now you now you're kind of past thinking about being an architect. Right, right. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's a good. I I think it's both. I think in the past it was a more it happened more often, um, mm -hmm. and now it's more of an extreme. You know, well, what else would I do? And obviously, there's these there's these like pivotal moments. Uh, graduate school, it's almost there's like a constant. All right, is this what I want to do? You know, it's, I'm investing in it. Like, is this what I want to do? And there's a lot more of those. Oh God, I just want to drop it all. You know, so you you have that a lot more of those moments in grad school. Then there's that pivotal moment. You finish. What do you do next? And to some extent, that's not entirely in your control because it's based on whether you get a postdoc. And so hanging on through thick and thin if you haven't gotten that postdoc right away is part of that's a pivotal moment when you would leave or stay so you have that the postdoc uh, unknown what postdoc you get who your mentor is so there's a lot of ups and downs there then there's a pivotal moment when you apply for a job I mean a, a faculty job or yeah assuming it's a you stay in academia um, once you've applied for the faculty job, then there's the moment of tenure. Like there's that moment of like, well, what if I don't get tenure? What's plan B? And so I always, I do find that I'm always like plan B, plan B. And it's not real. It's it's almost like a mind game. It's like uh, this, uh, first of all, it's just helps relax me a bit, but also it's, I also know that plan B is never really gonna happen. Uh, so um, how do you balance work and play or, or do you, do you feel like you live a balanced work-life balance and whatever that means to yeah, you? Not, right. not that anybody should be splitting their time between these two. Right. This is a, this is a tough question. Um, I actually do feel that I have somewhat of a balance. Um, I try not to work that much on weekends. Um, 
I mean, part of what I've traded off is I've traded off a nine to five job where I'm working nine to five with a job that I take home with me. And I'm okay with that. You know, I'm okay with, you know, uh, if my kid has a dentist appointment in the middle of the day, I can go do it without having to ask anybody. But at the same time, I'm working late some nights, I work on weekends, I answer emails. So I've given up the shutting your door at five o'clock and never looking at work until Monday morning. Um, but I'm okay with that trade-off. So I think on the whole of things, I have a work-life balance because I've accepted that that's going to happen. Some people do try and do the nine-to-five thing, even though they're academics. They really do shut the door. Don't They have a separate email. They have a separate... Um, they just have a policy with, mm-hmm. with their graduate students. You know, I will not respond to emails on weekends. Um, I'm not good at that, um, partly just because... I don't want to have to be on call those for nine to five Monday through Friday, so I've given you know I'm there's I'm flexible during the week, but I'm also then flexible on weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is as a now as a faculty member with tenure, I feel I've achieved my a level of work life balance that I'm okay with. Now when I give advice to my graduate students on work life balance, I feel it's a really hard thing to do because while I do want them to get good at balancing these things and and making sure that they're not burnt out so it's the extent that the balance parts the balance part keeps you from being burnt out I'm all for it however if in fact work-life balance means you produce less and then there's someone over here who doesn't have that balance who produces more they're gonna get the job and you're not so it's it's hard to there's so much competition for the jobs at this stage at the graduate and postdoctoral stage that if you want to be in the position where you have a job that you love that gives you work-life balance to some extent you have to give a little bit of that up mm-hmm. as a student I don't know I don't know if that's good advice or bad advice. I just feel like the work-life balance thing needs to be... You still have to be... You have to be a competitive person in your field. Sure. To, to get the job that then allows you the flexibility to teach less, maybe, to have more time for research, to... Right, and, and that that's a good point in that it's, it's, it's more complicated than just feeling balanced or, or what you spend your time in, right? Because if if you can maintain that productivity, you know, s- some people go into work right. far too many hours and they're, they're losing productivity. Right. There's a, right. So if, if, if going for a run helps you with that, by all means, go for the run. You know, figure out what makes you work well and do that. The, the, the problem is that if, if you, if you, if you have a really nice work-life balance, but you produce less at this stage, and you end up in a position where maybe you, you prefer research, but you're saddled with teaching, it'll be a lot harder to establish work-life balance later. Sure. So I get it's like a life history decision, <laughs> right, right. A, an academic life history decision. And, and presumably, you know, that you say now, okay, I'm a graduate student, I can, I can really work as hard as I as I need to now to get that postdoc yeah. and and then I'll relax and but then you get that postdoc and then you realize well wow man competition is even more intense yeah. now and 
and then maybe you you just keep doing that and then you're okay now I need to be tenured and and you just forget about the whole balance forever and that's what happens unfortunately that's what happens a lot when it's like okay I gotta get the postdoc okay now I gotta get tenure okay now I gotta get um and there is a real phenomenon of kind of burnout post-tenure you've just gotten tenure now you've done everything you've sort of you had that was your goal you get tenure and then you're like oh now what (laughs) (laughs) and then it's like it kind of there's a point there's this like associate professor slump where people are kind of it's the thing that we dreamed about all our lives now we're here and it feels like oh this was what I wanted and it is I mean obviously then you climb out of it and have some new research projects and are excited again but it's a real thing there's also the you know, I, I know some associate professors who you know have tenure, and they they they've held on to the idea that they just need to work insane hours, and they that they need to press on and they need to expand, and not that they shouldn't be motivated to do that when the enthusiasm and the passion is there, but mm. a lot of them have hobbies and things like that that they just kind of give up because they still feel that pressure coming from the top. So what I would say is you may have to put your hobbies on the shelf through grad school and possibly through the postdoc. But I think once you start as a faculty member someplace, that's when you need to, it doesn't matter that you don't have tenure. I would say that's the moment that you should bring all those things back, at least to some extent. They hired you based on what you've already done, and they hired you with the intent, I mean, unless you're at an Ivy League school, essentially most places tenure is yours to lose in the case that you know they just want you to kind of keep doing what you're doing. And granted, you've been doing what you've been doing because you've put aside life work balance. So that's something. But I think at that point you know, you do need to work it in. I don't think you should wait till tenure mm-hmm. to finally pull your hobbies back. Do you have any hobbies that you want to share? Uh, well, let's see. I I do yoga. I've been doing yoga for about 10 years. Um, I used to paint and I no longer paint so that's a hobby that I dropped in grad school and I now I paint with my kids a little but it's not it's not like I paint and my my goal finger painting yeah a little more like (laughs) figure painting I'd like to bring painting back I think that would be that would be fun um yeah yeah yoga sounds like a nice stress relief though for I like it a lot just kind of so I think for me I, I have too many hobbies and so I'm often like making pros and cons lists about oh, the hobbies and trying to figure out which ones to drop. So I should say though, also, I've never been a hobby person. Like I, I just, I never had some. I never had a sport that really defined me or something that I did all the time. I wasn't passionate about any kind of real hobby. So mm-hmm. it maybe a lot of what's coloring my my uh, advice is the fact that I never had something that I was so passionate about and had to give up and move on. Sure. Whereas if someone did, like running or skiing or mm-hmm. guitar, I would probably imagine that that would help them through the tough times rather than take right, time yeah. away. Right. Yeah, it's. I, I guess I just like tinkering, and so I can't. I don't have that full blown passion for one hobby that I could oh, just I like see. devote all my time to that. It's. It's. I really enjoy a range of different experiences, and so I just like to tinker with all of them, I guess. Right, right, right. And, and so it's hard for me to, to give them up. And But what that means is you just spend so much time 
figuring out which gear you need and, and, and buying things and, and, and like learning new hobbies and then going, okay, well, what about this hobby? Right. You know? Well, there's certainly a lot of evidence that, you know, a lot of these sort of Google and Facebook and these places where they have, they need people to think and program, they also have ping pong tables and, I don't know, you know, rooms where people can come and just socialize and relax and kind of... Uh, turn off their brains for a while mm -hmm. so that they're more effective when they're back at their desk. Right. And I think understanding what helps you think and when you think the best. Uh, I mean, sometimes there's just work that just has to get done and it's about plodding through it and not, you know. But then there's other times when it's imaginative work. You're coming up with the next grant proposal. You're really trying to come at a problem and figure out how to solve it. What species do I use? What, how do I? That, those kinds of things require a level of um, alertness that we don't always have if we've just been plowing through the day. Absolutely. Um, um, my PhD advisor and I have talked about this multiple times where he might be on a kayak run or, or we'll be skiing together or and something and then at the bottom of this run you just go, oh my God. I got it. You're like, here's the, the idea. The light bulb moment. Yeah. So identifying when you have light bulb moments. Everyone has light bulb moments. They might not even realize it's a light bulb moment, but like I get it right when I'm waking up. So if I wake up, and have to get up right away. It's I, I'll never have it. But if I wake up but have this time when I'm just like get to just lay in bed, those are always the moments that I solve problems. And it's like, why didn't I think of that before? Um, it seems and, important to take those moments right. and to, to let. I argue that's why I get it. to sleep in. Yeah, <laughs> it's work. <laughs> yeah, I'm working here. Just let me sit here. Uh, but I I do. I work best in the morning. I don't love mornings. I really, I struggle, but I, for sure, I have, if I mark down when I get light bulb moments, or at least when I'm, oh, this would be a good way to solve this, or why didn't I think of this, or even I'll forget to write up an appointment down on my calendar, and it's in that morning time, I'm like, I never wrote this appointment down on my calendar. I got to go check. Those sort of moments when you're like, why did I remember that right now? I think those are the moments when your brain is has its clearest openness that you need to identify as part of yourself mm -hmm. and then you know target that moment for the best thinking so set aside I mean this is true I think for any career um, whether you're a graduate student whether you're in academics or whether you're in some other kind of world is to identify the moments you work best and plan for those moments to be unimportant sorry important but non-urgent items, and I'm, uh -huh. I'm sure you know the, I don't know, yeah, the so, urgent... So making things more efficient so that you're, in the end, saving more time. Right. You're planning your day a little bit, Yeah. which so takes time up front, but... Yeah, like a little bit of planning, I think, can, can really go a long way. There's four types of tasks we do in our life. There's non-important, urgent, and most of our lives is spent doing those tasks. These fires you have to put out, but... It's not really important for your career. It's that you have to meet with someone and, I don't know, there's a lot of unimportant service work we do, mm -hmm. um, that it's, but it's urgent. You have to do it then. And then there's unimportant non-urgent, which means we just don't do it, which <laughs> shouldn't be done. goes to the bottom of the email. Yeah. <laughs> then there's urgent important, a grant deadline. So suddenly it's urgent and it's important and you work on it because has to get done but really the, where it's at like the, the sort of building your future of like 
where your is the important non-urgent stuff. And setting aside time for that is really hard because it's not urgent. Mm-hmm. It's like my next grant proposal or what's my next project going to be. It's sort of this, you know, setting up the pokers into the fire kind of business. Mm-hmm. And we don't set time around. We don't set aside time for those things. Right. It seems like, in my experience at least, it comes from days where you just happen to have a little bit of uh, loosening of the strings. Like you just happen to have right. a little bit of gap yeah. and, and not a lot of stuff do coming up and you're just like, huh, I've been thinking about this idea yeah. for a year. Maybe I'll just like poke yeah. into it a little bit. And those And I love those moments. Yeah. They're um, very playful, right? Mm-hmm. They're, it's much more like play than work. And trying to, so it's, and, and I think most of us have moments like that where it's like, oh, everything, I've just finished a bunch of stuff. Now what am I, and you, you sort of naturally have this lull and can think, but to to actually schedule those into the day without, like, this is my time for this. I am not going to think about all these urgent things that I start at noon, I'm going to start thinking about those. But now it's before noon, it's nine, and I'm going to think about these other things. Sure. It sounds like that would take a lot of discipline. Yeah. You have to be like, yeah. I, I am really going to shut my mind off to the, the other yes. things. Right. I mean, you do have to have some history of knowing I can do the urgent stuff in this time period, you know, and and re- sometimes restricting the time you spend on those things is important too, because I do know that I will spend as much time as I'm given on some of these tasks that, you know, take up a lot more time than they should, because, sure. you know, a lot of us are perfectionists, or we want, I don't know, we want to make sure our slides are perfect, or whatever there you know we, we end up spending time on things that probably don't matter so much mm-hmm. and so restricting that amount of time can sometimes free up time for other things and you mentioned earlier that you study primates yeah. um, I'm guessing mostly non-human primates or yes. Do you, yes okay and so as somebody who studies uh, non-human primates and I, I, I personally tend to think that you know as humans we're very busy creatures just kind of naturally and we, we want to be fiddling with something and so I think that most people want to work at something right obviously they want to be passionate but they, they want to work and they like work um, I guess given your experience studying primates do you do you think that we've kind of um, you know anthropologists might slash me for this one but like Evolved culturally or something to, to work more so than we have in the past and, and compared to our other primate relatives? Like, are, are we going too, too extreme? Or, or what, what is your take on that kind of a mm-hmm. question? Do we work too much? I don't, I don't know if I have an answer. I do think that many of us find work rewarding. So the kind of you know, it's like I said before, I think we do what we find rewarding. Mm-hmm. And if in fact, you know, soccer, you know, intramural soccer league, captain of the intramural soccer league, and you find reward from that, you'll find that that's where you spend more time. I think our society does reward work. You know, we, we give rewards for work. So people often are able to find their, they replace their hobbies with work. Um, I don't know that that's universal. I feel like in some ways that's an American thing, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Uh, I spent last year in Germany. Where at in Germany? Uh, in Göttingen. Okay. There's the University of Göttingen, and then there's a primate center there. So I was there for uh, nearly a year, 
and um, they s- I just felt from the colleagues I was surrounded with that they had a better work-life balance in general. Um, I think Americans tend to be more, there's a dichotomy where there's these like workaholics, but then you get people that, you know, shirk work and, you know, sometimes, yeah. I don't know. I do, I do feel like there's some, there's sort of a... It's more, more bi- bimodal. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and what the people attracted to academics tend to be the ones that are in the finding work rewarding. I mean, it feels like that's what the whole tenure process is, mm-hmm. is it's seeking these people who will work anyway. So you're looking at this record of a person, and you're looking at what they've done, and you're looking at what drives them. And what universities want is this person that would be doing it anyway, that right. that is just driven to work and work on this problem regardless of the payment and the all the other things. And it's like a self-selecting process. So, yeah, I mean, I think we do work uh, certainly a lot more than, I mean, we, we, we use our brains to work rather than our bodies to work. Mm-hmm. Um, we've solved our problems of getting food and warmth and right. social support. So now we're, we're, we're convincing ourselves that these scientific problems are the ones that yeah. are the most important. And it, and it is addictive. I think I think there's something there. Like so, I I'm all, I also hunt, and um, a few weeks ago I killed an elk, and, mm-hmm. and my girlfriend and, and one of my really good friends we we hauled it down together, and we processed it ourselves. And there was something so innately like satisfying, just so sa- deeply satisfying yeah. about that. I know. And, and I could see why a lot of us get really addicted to work. And and I think it's just it's you know it's no longer relevant for survival but like you said we've already we've already established that we have food and we have shelter and we have these right. things and so we need something else to latch on to right I, yeah I think it, that's entirely true I do field work and I think I get a lot of the same feeling from field work as you describe when you're hunting elk so once I'm in the field suddenly I mean, it's why we camp, essentially. It's suddenly the things that we took for granted, getting food, getting shelter, being comfortable, are gone. And now we are focused on trying to uh, retain those things, or trying to get those back. You know, trying to cook a nice meal in the field is really challenging, but super fun. You get much more reward from cooking a nice meal in the field than you do from cooking it at home. Um, Even just having a shower in the you know a shower across the week is this big accomplishment (laughs) so these kinds of things become you're sort of you're back to survival not really but it's back to a survival kinds of things that bring us a sense of reward in a way that uh, living our lives here we don't quite get Mm -hmm. I I always describe being in the field as feeling more alive and I think things that cause us to feel more alive which often are not comfortable. They're stressful, they're not comfortable, but accomplishing it and getting through it is what is, is, is rewarding. And I think as an academic, I think it, maybe it's true for a lot of jobs, but I think academics is a stressful job. Overcoming that stress, getting through it, getting through that grant application, giving a talk and getting through it, getting feedback on your poster at a conference, those are stressful things that we get through 
and we get a dopamine surge at the end of it all, and that drives us to the next one. And we keep seeking the next high, you know. Okay, now I'm, you know, uh, uh, I've now given a poster. Okay, now I need to give a talk. Okay, now I've given a talk. Um, I need to give a plenary. Okay, now I've given a plenary. I don't know. I need to, uh, or there's like the tenure track, which is sort of a climbing of a ladder. And okay, now I need to be National Academy of Sciences. <laughs> but it's it's like sure. we just. I'm sure that's the build up for a lot of really successful scientists. It's like seeking the next mm-hmm. big thing. Yeah. So it is sort of an addiction in that. I think so. I think sense, huh? you know if we could just measure every time we get dopamine, mm-hmm. we could see what makes us happy and go after those things. And I think a lot of academics get a dopamine surge from grants and publications. And well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this, and I wish we could continue on, but sure. we're out of time. That's okay. We're actually thank over you. the time. But I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's fun.